Amen. Thank you so much for that. Awesome. If you haven't been with us, we've been looking at the early chapters of Revelation, this long book, and we're looking at the, the first part of it. And last week we looked at chapter 4, which is a great scene of worship. And you see just everything focused on Jesus. If you were with us and you just remember, everything just keeps aiming back at Christ, who Jesus is, what he's done, what he's done for us, who he is to us. And so chapter 5 really builds on that and goes forward a bit. It continues uh, what uh, has been started in the previous chapter. Remember, the, we invented the chapter system and the verse system and all. The, the book of Revelation just really flowed right on into what we look at this morning. Tonight, in the evening service, we're going to look at the verses that follow right after this and uh, see how this worship scene is concluded with the international praise in heaven of the nations, the, the redeemed of the nations of the earth. But in Revelation 5 and verse 1, John's looking at this scene and trying to describe it. And he says, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. Now, I would love, I'm, I'm a Bible collector and a, I'm all into manuscripts and stuff and, and like that kind of thing. I would love to see what that looked like. I can guess, uh, based on uh, what you see coming out of the first century, what it probably looked like. Imagine a book like this in, in John's mind and, and John's seeing this book. It's written on both sides. So the word that's used there. Uh, it's the word we get Bible from in English, uh, but the Bible book is written on both sides. It could be a scroll that's rolled up. You've seen those. Or it could be in book format with pages, which is probably what it was, uh, I would guess, in the first century. Uh, there are manuscripts from the first century that are on both sides of individual pages that were once in book format. The most famous of them all discovered fairly recently is called P52 for Papyrus 52. Some, a few of you know, you've had the course and you know what that is. It looks about like my hand in shape and it's about the size of my hand and it's got the book of John on both sides and it dates almost back to the day of John. It could have been copied from John's original. It's so ancient. Uh, well, that's, that's kind of the idea, I think. But there's a book of double-sided pages in this heavenly scene. It's not in First Baptist somewhere. It's in heaven in glory in this amazing scene. And all of creation is watching with John what's going on there. And John says, as I looked at it, I could tell it was sealed with seven seals. I don't know what the seals look like. I've seen... Uh, ancient documents with a wax seal that's pressed and that kind of thing. And I, I don't know how you seal a book in seven pieces. But here's a, a hymn book. You recognize this. And I've got paper clips, seven paper clips in there. Uh, so just begin to get your own image in your head of a manuscript book uh, that's something like this. And it's sealed up in sections so that you can't read it uh, unless you do something. You could, I could read parts there, but imagine that all seven sections or seven divisions of this all-important book are sealed up, and it's essential that it be seen. There's something about 
not only has God accomplished the gospel through the coming of Christ, but there's something about the unpacking of this book that sets in motion or is synonymous with the active carrying out of God's plan of the ages. And it's sealed up. Have you ever, we have to be real careful, don't we? Not second guessing God. Isn't that an easy thing to do? Now, we don't do it in the grand sense, uh, but we might, in, we, like, Lord, I don't understand yesterday. I don't know why this is going on in my life. I don't understand why that diagnosis is a part of my experience or why that account looks like it does when I count the numbers. Lord, I don't understand why you're not intervening. I don't, I don't see it. Haven't you had feelings like that? You probably, a lot of you had feelings like that this morning about something that's going on in your world and your life experience. And John's looking, and as he describes that, he's really looking for all of us. He's describing the hard experience as you look on, knowing that there is a God, and God's got a plan, but we're just not seeing it all. And there's something about John that wants to know what's in the seals. It's sealed up with seven seals, uh, not available for public reading at that point. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? Who can solve this problem for us? We need the book. We need answers. We need to know that God's at work. We need to see what he's doing. We need him to to carry out the final stages of his great plan because otherwise, wow. The angel says, who's worthy? Who can handle this problem? Now the question is, be careful, the question is not who is able to open the book. I don't know what the book was like, but you know, if it was just a book, uh, there'd probably be a lot of people who could uh, slit the seals however they were configured. They might have been straps or wax seals or whatever was holding that together. Uh, there might be a lot of people that could pull out their pocket knife and, and work on that and, and break those seals. Uh, they might be able to do that. That's not the question. Who is worthy to open the book? Who has the credentials to open the book? And you know the answer. You've been around there's really only one who's worthy, who has the credibility, the, the, the spiritual integrity, uh, the, the spiritual horsepower to accomplish that task. Jesus is worthy to open the book. Only Jesus is worthy to open the book. It's only appropriate for Jesus to open the book. Oh, Jesus, why haven't you opened the book? You're the only one. We, we dare not touch it. I might take my knife and break the seal, but I'm not worthy. And if I do that, what judgment might come on me? I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the Savior. I'm not perfectly holy. I'm not worthy to break that book. Lord, what do we do? And that's the great problem of the throne room in heaven. Where do we go with this? What, what happens next? And John records, and no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book. Or to look into it. Some people are a little troubled by the under the earth. Who, who's under the earth? It may be a, a, a euphemism or something for uh, people that have died and been buried. Uh, the, the previous generations uh, can't open the book. Uh, the people dwelling on earth can't 
open the book. The living can't open the book. Those in heaven can't open the book. No one. There, there, there. There's nobody qualified to open the book. None of us, unless we're crazy, none of us would dare to say, I got this one, I'll handle this. Uh, I think I'm going to pray. I'm good. I'll I'll do this. I'll, I'll take charge of this and solve this dilemma for everybody else. Now listen to John. John to me, you know, if you, you hang around here long, you know I have a, a, a great appreciation for the Apostle John. I just think he's uh, phenomenal. The Catholic Church reveres Peter as the first pope and all. John's the one that's got phenomenal heart. He's the one that was at the cross and ran to the empty tomb and, and saw the risen Jesus and was on the Mount of Transfiguration and those things we talked about last week. John's an amazing individual filled with heart. When Peter was denying Jesus, John was pulling him in the room saying, we're with him. John looks on this scene in heaven. As John's recording this for us in the book of Revelation, he's an old man. It's probably been 60 years since Jesus, something in that ballpark. There's an argument for an earlier book of Revelation, but even then it would be decades after Jesus Probably in the late 80s or 90s, uh, John's recording this, maybe the mid-90s. Most, most people will put down 95-ish uh, for the date of Revelation. And old John, if he was 20 with Jesus, uh, he'd be 85, probably older than that. And old man John is looking on this scene. Just imagine yourself watching a movie about something of a good movie, about something of spiritual significance And he's watching all this unfold before him. And he says, and I began to weep greatly. That's really not the best translation. It's an imperfect active verb, which a few of you know what I'm talking about. But it means something that happened in the past, but it was continuing to happen in the past. So it's not like I had a good cry over it. He says, I was weeping. I was grieving over this. An ongoing, heart-stirring way. I was grieving because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. Now, I found that really an interesting, a little troubling, a little confusing, verse 4, because I thought, John, if anybody knows Christian theology, it's John. And the church is now 60 years old, 60-something years old. And John has been on the cutting edge of the spread of the gospel. And John knows theology. So why does he write like that? Uh, He knows the conclusion. Have you ever cried watching a movie? Probably most of you have. Some of you wouldn't want to admit it. Uh, But a really good movie may stir you. Some of you probably cry over all kinds of lots of movies, but... Uh, A really good movie uh, can stir your heart and you find yourself kind of caught up in the story. And you know it's just on television or it's just at the theater. You know it's not actually really happening there, but the story begins to impact your heart. You begin to cry. For some of you, it might be the Hallmark Channel. (laughs) I don't cry over the Hallmark Channel. Some people do, but... Uh, But I I tell you, there are some movies that stir me um, 
the Luther movie we've shown in here a while back. Chariots of Fire, uh, the great Eric Little story of the Olympic runner for Great Britain um, who died on the mission field. What an, and there are a couple of scenes in that. I've, t- I, I've watched that. There's no telling how many times over the last 40 years I've watched Chariots of Fire. And I can get stirred by that every time I watch it. I, I can hear the notes to that theme song, and it triggers my memory of a couple of scenes in that movie. Uh, my favorite, top of my movie list right now is Amazing Grace, which you've seen, which is the Wilberforce story and or the John Newton uh, writing of Amazing Grace, but the Wilberforce story of ending slavery in the British world. And that, that is such a powerful movie, and it's thoroughly accurate. And boy, there's several places in that where there's some speeches made. And I get chilled. I've watched that movie over and over. I've shown that in Africa over and over. Every time I watch it, it stirs me. There's a scene at the end that's uh, there in historic dress, but it's a British marching military band. And they've got their drums and there's this long drum roll and, and the horns start to play and the bagpipes kick in and you get that British military sound and they're right in front of Westminster Abbey and they start marching towards you playing Amazing Grace. I tell you, I can almost cry telling you about it. You just kind of get into it. And you know, I, I know now how the movie's going to go, but it still, it stirs. John knows where this is going, but it stirs his heart and he is touched and moved by it. I've told you before, my first time in Zambia showing the Uh, Jesus film at night in June, which is the cold season. And some of our people had already gotten on the bus. No names mentioned, Uh, but it was cold out there. And uh, I was watching my watch, you know, how long? And and we, it was maybe eight o'clock and we hadn't eaten. And I was really kind of ready to kind of wrap it up and do whatever you did with showing the film. And Jesus was being crucified on a screen out in the middle of this field with little speakers blaring the sound. And I looked over next to me, and a little Zambian woman, about that high, with her hands folded, was bowed, but looking up at that screen of Jesus dying and tears rolling down her face. She knew what that movie was about. That was not the first time she'd heard about Jesus dying for us, but she was stirred by what she saw and the depth of the spiritual significance of the cross of Christ. Now our hero John is looking at this scene in heaven and he says, I was weeping. Oh, people, I was, I was stirred by that. Are you ever stirred by how lost you are without Christ? Or what you'd be like if Jesus was not a factor in your life? If Jesus was not the risen Savior and Lord of all, have you ever wept by what a mess life would be like? And you're surrounded by a lot of people who do not know that and do not experience that and do not have that hope and do not have that victory. And John knows a lot about that. He's seen a lot of that over the decades leading the church. And he sees that scene. The book of hope, the the book that says, this is what God does about the dilemma And it's sealed up. And John is touched by that. Nobody's worthy to open the book. Now, verse 5. And one of the elders said to me, stop weeping. 
John, stop weeping. Behold, which is uh, this uh, word of calling you to attention. Look, John, look. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. There is a solution, John. John knew that. John knew the solution personally. Sat beside him in the upper room uh, in the Last Supper. John knew the answers, but, but the angel says, John, the lion, the lion. Somebody needs to shake us sometimes and say, the lion, the lion. It's, oh, yeah, Jesus. I, oh, yeah. The angel says, behold, the lion. Look at the lion. It's the lion from the tribe of Judah. Well, the background, people that say you need to separate the Old Testament from the New Testament so people can find it easier to come to Christ without all that Old Testament stuff. That's crazy. That doesn't work. These verses are rooted in the Old Testament. At the end of Genesis, you're coming down through the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And at the end of the book, the last chapters of that long book of the Bible, Jacob begins to bless his 12 sons with a particular message for each of them. And he comes to son number four, Judah. And the name Jew, or the Jewish people, they get their name from Judah. Jesus operated when he was in the south in the, the region of Judea. All comes from the name of Judah, the fourth son of Jacob. And old Jacob reached over and blessed Judah. And he said, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall not be, your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's house shall bow down to you. In other words, the family story with all these tribes, is at some point it's going to converge on you personally. Judah is a lion's whelp from the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches, he lies down as a lion, as a lion who dares rouse him up. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. The scepter is the symbol of ruling. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, the tribe of Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. And our Jesus was born, you can study the genealogies, comes eventually in the line of Judah. He is the lion of of the tribe of Judah in the line of Judah, he comes as the Messiah 2,000 years almost after Jacob said those words. And here it's woven uh, into the book of Revelation. Don't weep, John. There's the lion of the tribe of Judah. For 2,000 years, John, God's been working down to, your, to the coming of your friend Jesus. And he is the lion. And John, don't forget that. And John hadn't and he wouldn't dare, but he is reminding us. And he says, and he's the root of David. David is about a thousand years before Jesus. It's pretty easy to round it off. David's about a thousand years before Jesus. Abraham's about 2,000 years before Jesus. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. So you got these big spaces. So you jump from Jacob way down the line uh, to the days of uh, uh, King David. And he says, this one who we're going to talk about right now is the root of David, which is sort of backwards. But uh, the root of David comes forth in Shiloh and the Messiah in Jesus. 
This lion of the tribe of Judah is also the the descendant, physical descendant and spiritual descendant of King David. And he has overcome so as to be able to open the book. He is worthy because of who he is and what he's come through and and down to this very age. He's overcome so as to be able to, to break the seals. The seals are not a problem for him. He has the capability of doing it, but he has the credibility to do it. He's worthy to do it. None of us, uh, there's nobody on this earth that's got that kind of integrity, spiritual integrity, but the lion can do that. John continues on. And I saw between the throne, you may have to go back and read read chapter four and and set up the, the throne room again, but I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders, a lamb standing as if slain. He says, I saw literally a lamb having been slain. Uh, If you looked in John chapter one, John describes the days of John the Baptist baptizing and the arrival of Jesus. And the scripture says, the next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus is the Lion, but he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Back in Exodus, uh, you've heard the story of the Passover and how they sacrificed a lamb, put blood around the doorpost and prepared that house to be passed over uh, so that the firstborn didn't die in that household. And as a picture of the gospel where the blood of Jesus covers us. And so the instruction coming through Moses to the nation was speak to the congregation of Israel saying on the 10th of this month, they are to each one take a lamb for themselves according to their father's household, a lamb for each household. Now, if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his neighbor nearest to his house are to take one according to the number of persons in them, according to what each man should eat. You are to divide the lamb. Your lamb shall be unblemished, male, a year old, and you may take it from the sheep or from the goats. And you shall keep it until the 14th day, the same month. And then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. And they did that. They kept that animal, a little sheep or a little goat in the house for four days, which creates a a problem, a bonding problem. I've told the story before I know, but uh, I was having lunch in Zambia one day at a picnic table and I was the last guy eating. I was, I got there late. I'm the last one eating and everybody else has started to clear out and go on about their responsibilities. And the ladies who cook were working on the next meal and bringing chickens out and they started chopping chicken heads off. I'm in Atlanta. I know nothing. And it was just, you know, this, the crazy chickens flapping around. And I'd never seen anything like that in my life. It was incredible. I don't care about seeing it again. <laughs> Once was enough. Uh, but that went on for a while. And there was an excitement running through the camp because they were going to have a celebration that night. They were going to have a goat roast. And as I was watching uh, after the chickens, out came a little goat on a leash. She was about that tall. She was beautiful. If I had 
any way in the world to get her on an airplane, (laughs) she'd be in my backyard today. She was pretty and soft and sweet. And I said, no, you're not going to do that. And they did. But I didn't, I got out of there. I'm not, (laughs) they served that meal that night and the guy serving, he put a little something on my plate. Turned out it was a piece of bone. It had no meat on it. That's what I got from the goat which is all I wanted from the goat. But everybody else was so excited uh, that they got a little bit of goat meat in that celebration. But in Passover, there would be uh, a, a bonding of some time that would go between the time the, the animal selected and the time it sacrificed. Arneon, the word that's used there by John, uh, can, it's said to be the form of a young one. Um, that's questioned by some, but it's perhaps a young lamb uh, like my pretty little goat in Africa. And it's, it's presented. And John says, I'm watching this whole thing. I'm watching this movie in front of me. And I see a lamb standing as having been slain. Having seven horns and seven eyes. If, you, if you're really into saying, I take book of Revelation literally, then you're, you're probably going to have some problems because obviously some of this, don't try to visualize Jesus with wool and seven horns and seven eyes. It just doesn't really work if you, you take it hyper literally. It's imagery uh, talking about the power and the authority and the omniscience of Christ. He says, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. John says, I, I see this lamb. I was thinking about lions, and now I see a lamb. And he came and took the book out of the right hand who sat on the throne. So Jesus sees the lamb uh, and presents it, and something begins to happen. What happened in chapter 4? Worship began to happen. So uh, here he sees the lamb. Uh, Verse seven, it says, and he came and he took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Jesus takes the book. Jesus takes charge. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense which are the prayers of the saints. Now, the Wednesday night crowd is ahead of you, and we've been looking at some of the seals, but the lamb begins to take the seals off and reveal the pages. He's worthy to do that. We can't do that, but he breaks the seals, and the story comes alive. The record of God's sovereign plan of the ages comes alive. And everybody's watching the lamb, John's watching the lamb, the living beings, whatever they were around the throne are watching the lamb. The elders around the throne, the 24 elders are watching the lamb. And they're all profoundly aware that they cannot do, it is not appropriate for them to do what he is doing, but it is absolutely appropriate for him to do it because of who he is. And John says, weeping John, who's been encouraged by the angels, he says, when he had taken the book, 
the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. They fell down and they worshiped our Jesus in the center of heaven. What a great image. John, uh, for all he's seen and all he's experienced with Jesus and all those years of leading the church, John is still blown away with it, overcome by it. Now here's an equation. Those of you that like math things, here's an equation. The lion plus the lamb, which is really the same, but stay with me. The lion plus the lamb equals the gospel. Our Jesus is the roaring lion who created the planet we walk on. We sang earlier about his breath in our lungs. That's the lion, the creator God, who also is the lamb of God. John the Baptist saw him coming. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold, here's the one who can unpack God's story for us. Here's the one who can not only describe it for us, he's making it happen. He is the reason it can happen. That's our Jesus. When is the last time you wept about the fulfillment of God's plan? For the ages. I tell you, you and I, ought to, in the presence of God, be grieved for every unfinished jot and tittle of the Great Commission until it's all done. Oh, it's amazing what you've done, but Lord, those people, those people in Southeast Asia, Southern Africa, or Northern Africa, Lord, who's going to take this message to them of the lion, the lamb, the son of God who has risen in victory? John sees that, and he says, the very center personalities or characters of heaven see the lamb take the book and his mere taking of the book moves them to all-out worship now that ought to do what you're supposed to do the reason this book's written is you're supposed to take it and actually read it don't just carry it around don't say i'm going to get to revelation someday but you read the book of revelation just read the, the whole book straight through and you get this message the book is in the Lamb's hand. All of my stuff is in the Lamb's hand. My diagnosis is in the Lamb's hand. My finances are in the Lamb's hand. The, the length of my days on earth are in the Lamb's hand. All my relationships and circumstances and all that, He knows. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. That's just an awesome symbol for unlimited potential to solve your problems. Now, he may not do it the way you want him to do it, but there is no lack of energy on his part to, to deal with what's going on in your life. He is the lion, but he is the self-surrendering lamb of God who died in your place that you might have victory through him. That's our Christian gospel. That's what people around us need to hear. That's the message of hope. We're not worthy. He is. We're not able. He is. We don't understand. He does. We can't handle it. He is handling it. And his sovereign grace and mercy, our Jesus, is in charge. And the better you can understand that and, and respond to that and apply that to your lives, the better off your life will be. 
Jesus is our lion. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. His heritage goes back to the book of Genesis and into eternity past. Never been a time when he didn't really exist. But he comes as the lion of the tribe of Judah, fulfilling all those old ancient Genesis prophecies. And he comes as the lamb in the gospels who dies in our place for our victory. What a powerful encouragement. Uh, you need that this morning. I know because I need that this morning. We need to understand just how good he is, how compassionate he is, how understanding he is, and how powerful he is. I've had a lot of people sympathize for me in different settings. You know, when you skin your first knee as a kid, you have people sympathize for you. A lot of them don't know how to help you, though. Our Jesus sympathizes and knows exactly what to do for you to get spiritually where you need to be. That's our Jesus. That's our gospel. I want to ask you to bow your heads and join me. Father, we're grateful this morning for a Savior who is the lion, but who is also the gracious lamb, the atoning sacrifice that wins our victory through the finished work of the cross. Lord, may it be that everybody in this room this morning is encouraged by that reality. May it be that that encourages us to go out from these walls to be ambassadors for Christ to a culture and a generation that really, really needs to hear what John just described for us. Someday we anticipate uh, seeing the throne room of heaven, being on the back pew of what's going on with all of this that John describes. But Lord, in the, the challenges of this life, we pray that you'll deeply impress on us these profound theological truths that our lion, lamb, savior, Messiah will be our hope, our encouragement, and our joy. And we do pray in his name. Amen.